Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 49, The Legend of Zelda, Majora's Mask, episode 3. And back with me is my esteemed colleague who's gone up the Goron Mountain to the Goron Village with me, and that is Mr. Russell Chance. Welcome back, Mr. Chance. Hey, it's good to be. Uh, the mountain just is, I think it's called Snowhead in this game, but it's, yeah. Snowhead. It, it's, it may as well be the mountain of the Goron. I mean, they are, are the most interesting denizens of that mountain, I, I would agree. Yeah, even more interesting than uh, the now white boos that we run into, or I suppose they're not called boos, bows, whatever those little white spirits are called, that I think is such an interesting reminder of the theme of death in the course of this text, or this this game. And so, just a couple of things I wanted to mention about this, this, um, this mountain village we run into, this snowhead uh, um, mountain we run into, these, these paths with these very dangerous white wolves that we run into. Um, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the music that we hear. Again, a very creepy sound when we get into the Goron village and even the mountain village ahead of it. Uh, the fact that it's snowing here, sort of reminding me of the Ninth Circle of Hell and Dante's Inferno. And then we, we also run into an actual dead spirit that we have to follow along and who uh, then embodies himself in a mask, which gives us the ability to ourselves embody a hero uh, from the dead. And so I just wanted to sort of touch on the music theme, how creepy it is, some of the uh, enemies being actually dead themselves, and then the fact that we, we again run across death. Sure. I'm, yeah, I think that those both are pretty central in the game. And... Yeah, the death theme might not have been too prevalent so far, right? Um, we saw it right. in a little way with the butler, Deku King. Um, he, you know, talks about his, his son who, who is lost. And um, there's something there, uh, but it's, it's much stronger when you go up the mountain. And yeah, I like the, the reference to Dante. There, there is even that giant invisible Goron who, whose breath causes the cold wind to blow at the very peak of the mountain. Um, but he, he's hardly uh, as, as terrifying as Lucifer. He's easy because you just, you put him to sleep with the song, um, the lullaby that you learn. And uh, the, the, other, the other music that sort of just ambient, um, yeah, creepy. Um, and more than that, when, when you come through, the mountain and do arrive in the actual Goron village, which is sort of underground. And there, there's like a more cheerful music going on in the background, the usual sort of uh, drums and things that you get with Goron music. But, but there's cutting across it this awful, shrill, whining, um, you know, it's, it's a weeping sound. And so the death and the music are, are actually, you know, connected in that way, right? His, his, his dad isn't dead, it turns out. He's just, you know, frozen and you can rescue him. But, but still, um, there, there's this kind of, uh, you know, dissonance that enters into what should be a cheerful place um, because of, of this, uh, this mayhem that the Skull Kid and the Majora's Mask have been working. Right, and I want to just add to that theme of sort of afterlife, death, and dissonance, and that we run into our Al friend again, who has given us the capacity to save and given us that highly useful song of soaring that enables us to go anywhere there 
to instantly transport to any place that has an owl. And so we have to do this sort of like Monty Python-esque Indiana Jones and the Holy Quest for the Holy Grail sort of move where we jump across these hidden platforms. We have to sort of have cunning and faith when we jump across these feathers, which then enables us to get this lens of truth, which helps us to see that which is unseen or to see the ghosts themselves. And so <clears throat> there's something here about sort of wisdom starting as faith and ending up as experience, or it kind of reminds me of what an education is about is what education teaches you, especially in secondary and higher ed, is to see that which you otherwise would not see if you were not educated for yourself. And there's also a Dante element there. And there's also a Dante element in that this is a mountain, like the mountain of purgatory, where one actually acquires the ability to free one's will through understanding uh, what is at stake in one's decisions, what's good and what's bad in accordance with one's goals. Literally, uh, you know, getting to the top of a mountain, the place of the gods. Um, and so I wanted to mention uh, that as well, that lens of truth and how that enables you to then go up a ladder that gets you um, to another temple, you know, the temple where you, or the, the gravesite of this great hero who now you get to embody. That just, as, especially that connected with the child who's crying about her lost father. I see here elements of death, rebirth, and sort of embodying a type, like, like the child is the one who becomes the one capable of embodying the hero, and thus there's sort of like a great chain of being sort of element going on here. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, yeah, that that is kind of at play, I think, because the uh, the child recognizes you as the fallen hero, right? When you do get the mask, so just to right. like walk through it in order, yeah. So you climb up as you know Link, probably because um, he's a little more versatile than the Deku scrub, but he could be the scrub too, I guess. But you you got to um, yeah, you've got to leap across those invisible blocks following the little feathers that fall down from the owl. I, I really love that touch. Um, it's a really frustrating little part of the game because, I, I mean, like, Super hard. The frozen invisible blocks, you jump on them and you slide right off. And so maybe you get to the second one the next time, but then you fall off of it because you got to change direction. <laughs> it's like, yes. oh, I guess. But for whatever reason, you're allowed to do it over and over as many times as you want. The consequences are not particularly steep. It's just... A little frustrating you maybe lose some time and you're constantly against the clock of course so that is something to consider but but anyway yeah so you know the lens of truth dungeon um is is ultimately maybe not as uh tricky as the the one in ocarina of time it's a it's a recurring item and that game you you fall down the well to get it um which is also cool in its own way here it's a little more sort of random it's just like this you know island that you reach by jumping over invisible blocks but i like that yeah once you have it then you can use it to see what it was you were were relying upon the whole time right and so you no longer need the owl to fly before you um, now you can see it for yourself right using well right. your magic your magic um, ability so maybe not everyone could see it which is i don't know maybe a an interesting component to that analogy with education um, whether there's something corresponding to magic meters and whether some people have a bigger magic meter than others, I don't know. But hmm. it does seem like, you know, at any rate, there's, there's always this uh, possibility of having a, a guide, right? And then for some, the guide can leave them to, to do it on their own. And for others, maybe the guide has to kind of stick around a little longer. Anyway, at, at any rate, so you've got the, got the lens, 
you climb the ladder. Yeah, and then you um, you play the song of healing again for the ghost that you can also see with the lens of truth, right? So he he does become, you know, he, he goes to his rest and he becomes this mask, which then you can wear. And uh, it's it's very drastically different being the Goron. You, you feel the weight as you walk around, right? He is totally, totally embodied. Um, in a, in a real powerful kind of way. He's so heavy, he can't even like jump a little bit uh, to, to, to pull himself up um, ledges. You know, you have, to, you have to take the mask off, become linked, to jump up on little ledges. It, but, but it is cool that you can use his weight as momentum to get rolling. And you can roll and roll and just like clobber through obstacles. And, and if you have some magic, then it pushes out little spikes that, that break and bounce off the thing. So you're pretty much invulnerable, except of course, if you, you know, roll off the edge of the mountain, but again, it's, it doesn't actually hurt you that bad. So I think, you know, being the Goron is really fun and it is especially cool that he has a personality this time. He, he's a definite um, historical figure that you're embodying. Uh, whereas with the scrub, it was like, maybe the hint is that you're the butler's son, but, but here it's very clear. You're this hero. You're this great, you know, the second coming of, of Dharmani and uh, you're, you're going to save the day. And sure enough, you know, as many times as it takes you, eventually you do. And I want to jump in and ask about that. Not only is the Deku scrub mask now we're thinking uh, a person that once gave another person happiness, but the same with Dharmani as a hero, he not only gave his people faith and confidence, but um, actively did great things for them. But I, that really wants me to ask you about or it makes me want to ask you about the Dharmani himself. When, so two things. I, I both want to ask you about the idea that once you come to know these people, you learn their music that, and then can have an effect on them, and then also acquire the ability to actually look as one of them by doing good deeds for them, and what you think that that means exactly uh, from a mythological or even just a social perspective, maybe even a psychological one. But... Um, also, I, I'm really interested in just the sequence itself that Dharmani shows himself to us. He says, can you bring me back to life? Or, or can you at least heal me? What are we healing him of exactly? And then when you play that song for him, that all-important song, and actually this is the song of healing, whereas later you will use to put to rest uh, the Goron uh, lullaby, um, uh, the big Goron. You'll put him to sleep as well as you'll put the child to sleep. With that. And it's sort of sad that the dad doesn't remember the whole song or he claims not to, but not have the time. But something interesting with Dharmani is that what is it he's carrying? And then also when you do play that song for him, what seems to heal him is him seeing all these, it's very touching because the mute and the music I think is pretty good. I actually, it sounded good to my ears that um, it's people cheering for him. And is, is he realizing what Sephiroth could not in that moment? Is he, is he realizing that he had his time? What Alcibiades also could not in uh, Plato's Symposium. Is he, is he realizing that he did his part and now he has to sort of make room for someone else to make to their part, that he has to step aside, that he has to disappear? Um, or is it something else? It's just, I found that a very touching scene. And the second time I've seen a really touching scene after Skull Kid. Yeah, yeah. No, it, I definitely would agree. It's... Um... It's, it's, it's cool how it's paired with your 
you know, within the game, gaining this great new ability um, is paired with this very moving scene for, for the player sort of stepping outside the game and sort of reflecting on it. I, I like that those two things go together. You know, like most games, you get a new power up and it's just like, yeah, like rock on, you can do this new thing. Um, <laughs> but in this game, it's like, wait, like in order to get this new ability, you've got to go through something here with this character. And I think that that's a very powerful aspect of the storytelling here. And yeah, I agree. It's, it seems to be that sort of what he's realizing is, you know, when he fell off the mountain, it was final, right? He, he had reached the end of his, his adventure. And, uh, and yet, for whatever reason, when Link falls off the mountain, you know, maybe it's the owl that swoops down and, and grabs you at the last second and, and pulls you back up or, or something. You, you, for whatever reason, are, are not, you know, susceptible to um, bodily harm from that. So, so your adventure goes on and, and he uh, can contribute something really valuable and, and actually, you know, necessary um, in, in your quest. So, yeah, it, it does seem like healing for him involves um, sort of coming to terms with his own uh, heroic deeds, which are past now and, and that he sort of is going to to his rest and that his people will be looked after, right? And in, in much the same way that he looked after them um, by some of the same sorts of powers, but with this extra uncanny sort of thing that, that Link has. Um, and the way that Link uh, then uses that, like the first and most important way is to then play this song, right? Like when he plays songs with these different masks on, he actually has different instruments. And so like the, the Deku horns, you know, um, which he has to play very quietly when the monkey teaches him this the song of awakening. Whereas here, you, you have the 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 uh, the drums, right, which seem to kind of throb and and represent the kind of uh, rhythms that that the Gorons uh, embody, and and their song is one oddly enough of of lullaby. Right. You don't often think of drums as playing lullabies, maybe. So that's kind of a cool, right. you know, breaking down a cultural stereotype sort of thing, right? And and it and it again is a pretty moving little scene, right? You you um, play half the song, and the child knows the other half, and and then you have the whole thing, and he falls asleep. Um, that awful wailing stops. <laughs> Everyone's very happy, and they can sleep too. And you, you know, as the hero, uh, no rest for you. You've got to go on and. Um, and tackle the the next dungeon but but it's with this um yeah this combination of of heroism and gentleness um with you know the drums playing the lullaby uh i i like how there's these kinds of echoes and variations um that are established between the swamp and the mountain here well that makes me think two thoughts one is i you recall my hesitancy with admitting Mr. Kozlowski's uh, sort of statement of outright racism in this game. And I think there is a lot of evidence for what he's calling racism there. At the very least, I would call it prejudice, right? You do get certain perks, uh, either information or even attempts or even uh, chances to purchase property, right? Depending on whether you are a Deku or a Goron or probably later a Zora in whatever particular uh, habitat you happen to be in. That's true. But you do also, and this is, I think, the the part that makes it harder for me to admit of that distinction, because there seems to be a prohibitiveness to racism. Like, you're born into it, and you're good if you are, and you're bad if you're not. Whereas here, 
you as a human have the capacity to sort of, uh, and I think there are diverging uh, a pit or arguments you can make here. You actually are capable of embodying the one of these uh, race of people, and usually a high-ranking one like a hero or the son of somebody important like the butler. And in so doing, you become accepted. And so if you just take that literally, I suppose you could say it's still racist in that you are simply imitating one of those characters and they are taken in by your imitation. It's a simple disguise mechanism. But I think there's a deeper interpretation there too that I might be more persuaded by, which is that you gain entrance into these communities through your good deeds and what you offer to them. And that that um, and that that door is open to you, and then you become one of their own, and they perceive you as one of their own, and that that's part of the idea of building the personality in the educational sense that we've been talking about, and what it means when you acquire these masks here, because I think that's a very interesting aspect to education too. You gain not only the set pieces, the set concepts, like the actual physical embodiment of the mask, but it allows you dynamic motion within the world, right? You don't just learn a mathematical equation, you learn a mathematical equation that enables you to do something, like either you know do better on the SAT or you know build a bridge at some level with architecture. Um, and the second part that I'd like to get to later is what did you think about the representation, this sort of Rousseauian state of nature that these, uh, these differing people, they're sort of vaguely tribal and sort of, they value ritual and dance and song and time together more than seemingly technology. And I, I wanted to ask you about that sort of aesthetic in the game too, after after mentioning that piece that I mentioned first. Yeah, that is very, I mean, I think a very interesting aspect of what this game might teach, um, sort of how, you, how what kind of lens you might uh, use um, on the game, so to speak. And I think to the race question uh, in in terms of, what uh, acceptance into each of these cultures looks like, it does seem to come down to uh, Link's ability to to heal, right? That's like preliminary to um, to having each of these masks, and then wearing the mask, mm -hmm. he sort of transforms into one of those members of the race or tribe or whatever you know we want to call it. Um, and Ben has another, he has a point about this that I'll read. Um, I didn't get to it last time. He's got a couple of good points, I think, that are relevant to what we're talking about. So I'll read them out um, from his other message here. So Ben says, uh, this is his second of the five points. At one point, you bring up the use of masks in Elizabethan theater. That was back in our first episode. But I think it would be more profitable to look into the no tradition. I don't know much about it, but my understanding is that each mask embodies an entire character, not just an emotion like the Greek theater or a disguise like in Shakespeare. When Link wears a mask, he takes on that whole person. He transforms. If anything, as Link, he is identity-less. Majora's mask enriches the tradition of the, quote, silent protagonist as vessel for the player's expression by letting the yes. player literally choose what role to play, what mask to wear at any moment in the game. Uh, and then another one here, this is third point. For some time you contrasted the narrative-driven Final Fantasy VII against Majora's Mask. I think it would be more important to note that Majora's Mask does tell a story, but not through narration. Most of the events of the past have to be discovered by the player through the course of the game, which honestly seems like a more natural delivery method for an interactive medium. 
there are a few cutscenes, and those usually tied to specific characters or places in the world because that's how you learn about Termina and its people. The story is the cumulative effect of all these interactions. The Skull Kid's destructive effect on the world and his broken relationship with the giants, as well as the individual narratives of those dozens of side quest characters, as well as Link's role in fixing what the Skull Kid is breaking. You ride the story of Final Fantasy VII on a rail. Majora's Mask encourages you to take a much more active role. You are not fated like you were in Ocarina of Time. You are very much the outsider, the unpredictable force. The narrative is what happens when you aren't there to fix things. The story is what you do to change it. So I think that's pretty interesting kind of perspective on this whole thing. Um, I also don't know much about no theater, uh, but it would seem that uh, that's probably in the background here of this, this concept of wearing a mask and transforming into that thing. Um, it, it does seem that if there is, you know, some kind of corresponding element to like the catharsis that we talk about in Western theater traditions, right, that, that catharsis is a, is a very important form of healing indeed a very important form of ritual, right? Uh, for the people who are, you know, watching that play, performing something that might have been religious once, but now just has sort of a more um, communal, uh, you know, sort of emotional um, effect on, on us. Like, you know, these days you can't go anywhere without hearing people talk about Game of Thrones or Avengers Endgame or something, right? Like there's these kind of communal experiences that the theater provides um, or provided and now we have our own media that do it um, but yeah I think that there's there's a healing to that and and that's what I keep coming back to I suppose with with Link's um, you know prerequisite healing in order to then be able to enter into these these cultures um, I think as I was talking I kind of forgot the second thing you wanted to ask about so could you remind me what that was I was going to ask about the aesthetic of the villages and the, the peoples and how they seem to emphasize um, ritual and song and being together. Like we see these relationships between uh, Kume and her sister and the son and his father and this hero wanting to protect his village and this Deku scrub potentially and his um, father and this uh, illicit sort of Romeo and Juliet relationship Troilus and Cressida, which is incidentally something you wanted to study this summer, which I'm totally into. But I also wanted to comment on what Mr. Kozlowski said. The no theater, I take it to be the Japanese uh, Kabuki theater with their masks, though I'm not, I'm not sure if that's what he means. But I'd like to read into that. I'd like to read that quite some, some bit, and then I can compare that to what I know about the Elizabethan and the Greek stage. And um, we can make some connections there, because from what he says, that does sound like a better connection to make. Um, to his second point about the narrative being action driven, sort of like how I would, I would say sort of like how life actually is. You don't have a narrator um, sort of outlining what your life is. I mean, I sort of, that's sort of a Christian belief, providence, um, but you, that's not how you live your life. Even if you were to tell your story and it would look like it had some sort of purpose or final cause to it. I, I like that the story is the sum of the actions that you take within the game and thus the story is different for every person and it's it's not made necessarily articulated it remains for us to articulate it and that seems to be part of what link is doing by being voiceless and himself being called link right like a link in the chain like something that is uniform across uh time and in fact his uniform changes very little from what i understand across 
the games. He looks, you know, like Buddy the Elf, except for he predates Buddy the Elf. Um, so I, I had asked you that aesthetic question, and those were the comments I wanted to make to the excellent comments I thought by Mr. Kozlowski. I think he really sheds a lot of light on this game, and I, I very much enjoy hearing what he has to say. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, that that it will be really fun to get him on the show soon, I hope. Um, and in the meantime, maybe I can pester him for some more comments on the last couple episodes. But yeah, um, to the aesthetic thing, yeah, I think there, there's a really interesting way that um, – you know, each Zelda game sort of looks a, a little bit, you know, like its predecessors. You're, you're sort of in the same world each time. Um, there's going to be a mountain. There's going to be a swamp, uh, et cetera. But, um, but deeper than that, it seems like there, there is this kind of interest in um, exploration. And right for exploration to be interesting, there's got to be a certain amount of diversity. Uh, and so the ways that they um, sort of portray that through characters in some of the newer games, they can do a little more, more with that um, and having these kind of dis distinct uh, feels for what the swamp, you know, looks and feels like versus the mountain versus the sea and so on. Um, I think there's, yeah, there's a kind of like, uh, the music plays into that in a, in a big way. Um, the atmosphere that's created um, between sort of the water and vegetation of the swamp plus the music and, you know, sound effects of the um, the kind of uh, shrubbery noises that, that the, the guards make as they shake around, right? Um, that, that all is very different um, in its particulars from the kind of, um, you know, uh, drumming and, and, and the, the rhythms of, of the mountain. Um, the howling wind when it's snowy, but but also you know the the kind of village music inside. Um, they're different in their particulars, but they're alike in in that they are sort of yeah uh, you know close to nature in some way or something, right? Like um, they represent a uh, an aspect of of exploration which involves getting away from human uh, civilization um, and back to something that's it's like you know, closer to nature itself, like when people felt themselves a part of nature. And, and I think that's a big element of what ritual still accomplishes is to kind of help us recapture that. Um, music definitely does that. It sort of makes you feel at uh, connection with something greater. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of blurring uh, of, of the distinction between um, humans and their environment that you get uh, is, is really kind of awesome. Like, I'm sure it'll be, you know, way more uh, overwhelming as, as VR becomes more of a thing, right? You, you sort of are immersed in a world. Um, but, but I think there, you know, there's something to be said for the, the imaginative component of it that, you know, with these more um, simple uh, or old, old fashioned games, you do have to do a little more, uh, uh, as far as as the player sort of entering into that world, and that you know that's sort of like reading too, right? You, you, your imagination is working um, to to conjure up the world uh, given you by the story. Um, so well, I think, which I think, yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, which is certainly why people who read books and then imagine the characters up for themselves so often dislike the movie form, right? They they I think dislike. A, that the movie differs 
the movie portrayal differs from their personal portrayal in their minds because there are, you know, of course, slight differences between people and how they imagine things. But also that I think the essence of the character can change some when they, they have to uh, push the character into a different medium, occupying a different amount of time and being portrayed with relevant scenes that may not have been, you thought, the most revealing parts of the character. And which is potentially true, right? Plutarch says in the life of Alexander that um, his life will be complained about because it's not a history, because it doesn't detail all just the major benchmarks and deeds of a person, but shows the small moments that are, he thinks, perhaps even more revealing. And in a movie, you don't always have as much time to uh, put in those small touches. Like something I liked in the Harry Potter books was that uh, all those training sessions with Lupin and all that closeness that Harry got to develop that you don't really see in um, the movie. But while you were talking, you make me think of a fundamental philosophical problem and you put it quite well when I think you, you talk about, in conjunction with Ben's point, um, the practical versus the contemplative life. And I see sort of Zelda given its developmental level and also sort of the age of its protagonist versus uh, Final Fantasy VII, that, it, you know, he's sort of very young. He's like 12 or something like that, whereas you're, you're 19 and you're facing a differing host of emotional issues and also perceiving the world in a very different way from when you were 12. But that um, something about the game with Final Fantasy VII, and I'm not trying to draw only contrast between this game and uh, final and Zelda, but I do think this is a fundamental difference between Nintendo's big selling games and their aesthetic and the the essence behind them and the the for, you know the thought behind them, the leading thought, and also Sony, especially SquareSoft, which I would generally consider more mature and more mature in its themes. But it seems to appeal also to an older player because it is more narrative driven because it cares more about the issues even than the gameplay itself. And I know there's a major debate between, you know, story, execution, and gameplay. Gameplay, does, you know, does the game have to be fun to be, uh, to be great? And, um, but I, I also noticed that with Zelda, again, like the, the story is there for you to find sort of in the background. It's a far more embodied game. Like what you were saying about these two cultures, that music and dance are obviously more embodied forms of, emotion and thought than poetry, uh, though I would consider that uh, sort of the highest level of music because it is articulation set to meter. Um, but even but that's even more embodied than say philosophy and philosophical thinking, that that is the most abstract expression of something. And so that that is what Final Fantasy VII aims towards, dealing with the philosophical issues, whereas Zelda more is looking at the mechanics of how to actually fight them. It's almost as if, and I'm not, I'm not, sim I'm not saying this finally, but only for the uh, the purpose of contrast at this moment, and maybe it won't stand up to scrutiny. But that uh, the question of good and evil is sort of already set for uh, Zelda, and that's kind of why you're a healing factor, because you want to do good. You don't question good. This skull kid is up to no good, and you're going to go solve that problem. The, the question of what good and evil truly are doesn't need to be answered to enjoy this game. Though, I think you can I legitimately ask that question, and I think we did in the last episode. Right, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's very interesting to think about those different sort of perspectives or, or levels 
uh, of art from the sort of more sensory uh, embodied, um, maybe like music, then to something more poetic, then to something more abstract and philosophical. And I, I'd agree that each of those domains um, kind of has its, its, its wonderful aspect to it and its greatness. And maybe, yeah. you know, at different times in one's life, one is more drawn yes. to one kind or another, and maybe just different kinds of people are more drawn to one kind or another. And I think that there's certainly some truth to the old saying that there's, you know, there's no arguing over tastes because like from within each of those realms, it has its own truth and it has its own, you know, preferability to it. Um, yes. I think that, you know, being able to sort of move among them might be the most beneficial thing of all. And that's kind of what, I think we're trying to do as much as possible and, and what I think this game represents as well and in terms of Link getting to, to move from one place to another and, and for the player to be able to think about the game on multiple levels, you know. Um, I think the, the power of, um, of, a, of a game uh, is something that we're only just starting to, to sort of understand, which is part of why this is right. so fun and so, so exciting to, to get to do. Um, I feel like with uh, the the Final Fantasy thing, yeah, there is certainly a way in which it's more mature, but there's a, certainly a way in which it's you know perfectly immature too. <laughs> there's a lot about that game that that is hardly um, you know profound or or like <laughs> there, there's a lot of silly stuff in there too. You know, so there there's something to that too. Um, and I think uh, you know the idea that you get to sort of create the story story a bit more in, in Zelda through the exploration and, and through some actual choices you get to make about what to do first and second and so forth, that that is, a, a, in a way, a, 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 good bit, a good bit more sophisticated than, than the kind of linear story you get with the Final Fantasy. But, but all that is, you know, it, it's, it's, they're both great games. Um, they're both, I think, will ultimately say um, classics in their way, but, but ultimately maybe rudimentary for what, like, the game could become as a medium. Um, we're, we're only starting to, to dig into. Well, it's interesting how you mentioned the power of the game. It certainly has power over time, not only within the game itself, but with us. We are subjected to this three-day uh, time limit, and we have to slow down time and use our time wisely and then reset strategically. And the game does place you know, restrictions on our behavior that I think ennoble our souls um, to use more Aristotelian language, that uh, the game forces you to be regimented and to you really have to pay for your exploration because you're going to have to go back, deposit rubies in West Clock Town and know that all those wonderful items like bows and, or excuse me, arrows and bombs and Deku sticks and Deku nuts are all going to disappear and you're going to have to go get a whole bunch of them again, which is not that hard, but sort of annoying to have to do. That's, again, another constriction on your time. And, you know, we're obviously focused on this and we think about this, um, you know, in some detail we make, and we make time to talk about it too. And, you know, that's, that's, it sounds strange when you look at it like an anthropologist like that, as looking at us as a people and what our behaviors are, but, you know, it's the most normal thing in the world. Like even driving back home, there were some LARPers uh, in a nice park in front of me. Like, awesome. Yeah. People, I mean, California is a beautiful place. It's made for everybody. And, um, but the thing is people love to sit around and even in the ultimate community that I'm on, I would say the outskirts of, 
people will make time two or three times a week to play Dungeons and Dragons. Like people will come together to play competitive games that are broadly inclusive and have, I would say, confront major themes, like religious level themes of like good and evil, major wars are happening. What sort of person do you want to be and how do you want to contribute major, like, you know, more physical creature. <clears throat> and that, I mean, like you were saying with people going to watch this new superhero Marvel movie and these Game of Thrones, uh, you know, shows that I, you know, I go to see all of this and I love it quite a bit, but that uh, there does seem to be a power, a gathering power in these myths, these themes, these, these uh, video games, these new media seem to be the current manifestations of myths. It's not that the myths have been left behind in the past. <laughs> it's that we're still trying to articulate them and on more massive scale than we ever have. And that, well, yeah, we seem to be on the cutting edge of that. Exactly, exactly. I, yeah, I think that the part of what's so exciting about this is the way in which, you know, that with a game, you get to sort of have that mixing of levels take place in a, in a really novel way in that right. um, perhaps the myth actually grows and changes, right? Each time that you play it. Um, you're, you're seeing that kind of take place before your eyes. Uh, the, the way that that's represented kind of schematically um, or metaphorically in Majora's Mask is, is just really cool. Yeah, like there's this cyclical, iterative nature to the game itself. You, you have to start over time and again, um, you know, uh, work your way up to a certain kind of uh, pinnacle and then, and then descend, right, uh, back down. You, every time you play the Song of Time, you're represented as falling much as you fell in the beginning of the game. Um, mm. and, uh, and you wind up, you know, back at the clock tower again. So there's something, yeah, really, really self-aware about this game um, when you start to look at it uh, that makes it, I think, a really cool model um, to, to, to think about and to, well, just, just fun to play too. Like, I like having an excuse to play these old games again. Um, there, there's definitely an element of that in, in this project as well for me. Uh, I, I think that they are, are some of the, you know, simplest, uh, purest kind of aesthetic pleasure that, that I've had. Um, like I don't know yes. music or, or books uh, much better than I know these games. Um, and so getting to right. refer to them is, is always delightful. Uh, so we, we're going to have to do the, we'll actually do the dungeon itself for next time. Um, and maybe we'll get into a little bit of the clock town stuff for next time too, then, uh, which is what Ben had recommended that we do in between the mountains and the sea is, is spend okay. some more time exploring clock town and, and maybe the ranch if we get to it. Um, so how's that sound? That sounds great. Um, I did just want to ask you one last question. And um, that was, what do you think about the fact that this Goron mask is the first mask you've gotten since the Deku mask that has an animation and that it does, it's, you, I don't recall whether you scream or not, but you do seem to suffer some pain in becoming this mask, whereas the other masks are just effortless. You just flip them on. What did you think about that? Yeah, I I think that there is a difference, right? There's and they're even a, assigned a different spot on your inventory, right? They're kind of grouped up in the corner um, because yeah, there's certain masks that that actually change you, and there's others that you wear as Link, you know, 
road and, and walk around right. and meet talk to people, right? Like they each do something, of course, like you wear the cafe mask, you walk around and talk to people and they'll talk to you and say things about this missing child or person or whatever um, with the purple hair. Um, if you wear the bomb mask, uh, you can, you always have a, an extra bomb um, because it, it just regenerates, which is really handy. Um, but it doesn't like seem to uh, cause you that kind of anguish, right? You can actually blow yourself up and get hurt, lose some hearts, but it doesn't cause you that sort of anguish that these transformative masks do. Um, and yeah, they're different. They, 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 they involve that sort of crossing over into a new, um, you know, identity or, or like way of seeing the world, a new culture. Um, they involve somebody who is gone, right? And you're sort of um, borrowing from them. Uh, that, that sort of ratchets up the, the responsibility like on you to, to act properly as you are using that power. Um, you're sort of doing it on behalf of someone else who's who's bequeathed it to you. Uh, I think that that yeah, there's there's always a pain in doing it too. Like no matter how many times you put on and take off the mask, you always are gonna go through that. You can skip it, which is nice. Um, but if you let it go, it it'll always do that scream. And yeah, it's just like I guess a reminder of how much pain in some way Link is in this whole time, right? He's he's separated. Um, from his world, uh, <laughs> that's rough, you know? Um, there, there might be uh, a kind of inescapability to that, right? It's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a dark aspect of the game, um, but well, maybe one that, that rings true. Speaking of dark aspects, you're making me wanna ask just a conspiracy theory question, so we'll have to see whether this is a well-known one or not, that the masks that transform you are the victims of Skull Kid, that he's a murderer, and that because it just makes me wonder, and I let's make sure I have the facts right. In the very beginning, he sort of forces the spirit of the Deku on you, right? That's like the way he curses, curse greets you. He forces yeah. a mask on you rather than you earning a mask you want. He forces it on you, and it changes your being, not just your perception, but your being in the world too, right? Your perception is changed by by that matter of fact, how you're perceived in the world and how you act and how you then manifest your abilities, right? You have differing abilities and you even use your mind differently, right? Like shooting Deku nuts. But that, um, how did he have access to that Deku soul? Was, you know, had he like, is like one of the dark aspects of these masks that you can murder people and make them masks too? And that that's what he's done by pushing this Goron off a mountain or at least providing the conditions necessary for that Goron to fall off a mountain, as well as, you know, possibly first kill this Deku, that it's not just that he's making the moon come down, but that he might have actually done murder. Well, yeah, I guess it seems that he, um, he did put the spell on you that turns you into the Deku, and it's only when you have the the song of healing that it turns back into a mask. So yeah, there is some kind of relationship there. It seems like um, between the loss of life and the um, the the mask being an option for you. Uh, yeah, I don't know how. Again, it's, it's tricky to um, distinguish, but it does seem like maybe it's Majora's mask, right? That uh, uh, it's it's been sealed in this form, um, we're told, um, and, and sort of hidden away. 
and it's I guess the mask salesman guy who who discovered it right um so his he's the one who teaches you the song of healing that that's the thing that seems to take these spirits and reify them into masks um maybe he you know ex expects something like this to to be going on right that this is sort of the way that majora's mask operates um and that the the way to confront it is through um you know collapsing uh some of its its uh attempts at doing evil back into something that will allow you to to do good um but that there's always like an aspect of pain that goes with that um so i don't know like yeah there, there's there's more or less responsibility on skull kid um but also the mask itself that that he's wearing that's sort of uh possessing him um and and doing all these these awful things it's another example of like the limits of what link can correct too right like you can't bring these characters back to life you can you can only restart so much um and you can only uh make so much right right well i guess that's part of the game you know you lose time and there are other things lost with time as well and we can just do our best to re-embody the same virtues that made those people so special i suppose and a valuable lesson from the game itself and so for next time we were thinking about Beating that temple, I think you've already beaten it, but I'm going to have to go through there and try and get as many of the stray fairies as possible. Um, I, uh, alert, I'm not going to try and get all of them. <laughs> they are tough, man. They're, they're, they're tricky. Tough. Those mini games, I've never been big on completing all the mini quests that show pure mastery of the game. Um, I did like the card games in, the Final, Fantasy, in Final Fantasy VIII and uh, Blitzball in 11. Yeah, plus ball's cool. <laughs> it's like all I remember from that game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's some nice beaches. It's like San Diego Final Fantasy. Um, so ultimately, not that dramatic, just too pleasant. I guess there is a giant tidal wave that kills people. It's not cool. In any case, until we get there. So, finishing this temple, and then exploring Clocktown some more. And it right. is interesting to what extent, like, the game has already expanded so much more than I ever expected. And that also reminds me of Final Fantasy VII, like how consciousness at first, you know, it's just the playpen or the basket, or not the basket, but the cradle in any case. Um, and then, you know, it's your room, and then it's, you know, your neighborhood, and then your city, and then the world, and then differing, you know, places within the world that are not just physical places like hanging out with authors or creative people. It's like your life and your world can expand so much and we see that modeled in this game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can only soar to places you've already been to, but to get anywhere new, you, you gotta do it the old fashioned way. Um, yeah, and it, it continually uh, grows. And then you go back home and you discover new things that you never knew were there, right? The clock town, right. which we'll do for next week, yeah. Awesome. All right. Sounds great. Cool. Thanks. Thank you.